Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. It's the April edition of the Mailbag Bonus Pod. This is David Sampson. You're listening to Nothing Personal, the Mailbag Edition. You know what you do. Five stars. Go on Apple. Rate it. Review it. Ask a question. And each month at the end of the month, I'll answer as many questions as I can get to. If I don't get to your question, I'll try to get to it next month. Or you can try a different question because maybe I just didn't want to answer the question you asked. Now, in all seriousness, I like answering your questions. I got to get right into it. We have a full show today. The questions in April were phenomenal. I'm also going to get to at the end. It's the end of my top 100 movie list. Top 20 is coming out today. You know my top. If you listen to nothing personal, I appreciate your loyalty. You know my number one is fearless. Top 20 is coming. All right, right into it. First question. With all sports declining in the wake of COVID-19, will people realize that sports is not all that important? And does that concern you as a former sports executive? That, my friends, is the $64 billion question. I guess that accounts for inflation. It used to be the $64,000 question. I was going to say $64 million, but it's way more than that. What we are doing as an industry right now is trying to figure out our place. We spend as much time thinking about the logistics of reopening as we do about what we do once we are open. How do we recapture our quote unquote place in the economy? So when you say will sports decline, what you didn't ask specifically and the things that I think about as a former executive for 18 years I think about what decline are you referring to? Are you referring to fan affinity? Are you referring to in-game attendance? Are you referring to ratings? Are you returning, referring to advertising and sponsorship? Are you referring to the actual decline in franchise values? Because if people realize that sports is not important, That is the tip of the iceberg of what we all need as presidents and owners of sports teams. We need you to be engaged and we need you to be engaged. And we used to refer to this. We had something called uh, with the Marlins. Actually, it's worth talking about. It's the sales, the sales chain. The way it works in sports is the first thing you want to do is get someone to know that there is a sports team in their community. That sounds, that sounds crazy, right? Everybody knows that the Yankees are a baseball team in New York. Okay. That's step one. Step two, then have a person have some knowledge of whether or not a game is actually being played on a particular day. 
That means that they've watched the news. That means that they've maybe seen an article online. That means they've spoken to somebody. That means they've done something that gives them the notion and the knowledge that a game is being played on a particular day. Step three, get someone to know the outcome of the game. I know that there's a team. I know that they have played. I know that they won or they lost. Next step, have them identify on video that they have watched between 30 and 120 seconds of that game at any point, not live. The next step in the sales food chain is that not only do they know there's a team, not only do they know that there's a game, they know the result of the game, and on top of that, they watched a highlight. The next step after watching a highlight is that they take the time to watch about 25 to 40 minutes of the game. They sit down and they watch part of a game at a bar with friends, with children, any, with coworkers that they have somehow engaged in a game. The next step is they get invited to go to a game. From that, they either say no or they say yes. If they say yes, the next step is how do you get them to spend their own money to go to one game? The next step on the food chain is spending their own money on a ticket plan of some sort. The next step is becoming a full season ticket holder. So you can imagine there is an entire long roller coaster like ride of what it is to build fan affinity. What COVID-19 has done is that has stopped the roller coaster. Imagine when you're going up the ride and it just stops and you're stuck there in like suspended, suspended animation. What we are focusing on is getting that ride going again. And we recognize that people coming back and having full season tickets, right? We believe that that will be the last thing to return. But what we have to do is keep building the bottom of the pipeline. You know this in your business, the sales pipeline. You know what it means to engage your customer or to be engaged as a customer. So what we are focusing on in sports right now is what we will do to get the train rolling. Part of that will come with policies. There's been so much written about this week about MLB ticket refund policies how Major League Baseball, we talked about it in a nothing personal episode this week, where Major League Baseball said, hey, all the teams can do what they want with refunds. And then teams have come out and they have gotten absolutely crucified for the most part for offering refunds, but offering it like on page seven, footnote 49 of a document, as opposed to some teams who come right out and say at the top, like the Red Sox did, hey, if you want a refund, click here, done. Other teams like the Mets, they bury it very deep down into their document. That's a mistake because in my opinion, in order to get the roller coaster going again, in order to get fan engagement going again and stop the decline, you've got to give people not one excuse, not one. You have to present them with your new P of A. I call that my plan of action. The new P of A, you're seeing it from states. They give you the reopening plan in a 35-page document. Florida came up with theirs today. 35 pages on how to reopen. Is that overkill? Not at all. It is critical because for fan engagement, they need to know that you have taken the time to think of everything that they couldn't think of. 
every way to keep them safe, comfortable, happy, and entertained that they couldn't think of, didn't think of until it was already done. It's like the Disney plan. If you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, the Disney experience, you don't realize what they're doing to you to have you be happy and spend your money because you don't spend your money until you're happy. And you don't realize the way they do the characters, the way they do the lines, the way they do the concession lines, the ride lines, when they post what the waiting time is, where they have specific fans that are giving water, let's say. All of those things are done in sort of a subliminal way to make you feel as though you are having a positive experience. For sports to avoid a decline, we need to let every fan believe that they are not only having a great experience, but also that great experience is making it easier for them to decide to come back and spend their money, whether it's going to games, whether it's continuing with a subscription to MLB TV or to any of the premium subscriptions to watch games. It's a very complicated question, and it is a true wait to see. And we don't have wait to sees during the bonus pod, but it is a true way to see what the decline will be I promise that the recovery, we talk of recoveries in terms of V-shape or is it a U-shape? Picture a V. So we sports literally went off a cliff on March 11th, March 12th, right? Right down. The question is, and I'm making hand gestures, but I realize this is audio. So a V is you go right down the cliff and then right up the cliff, the cliff again with a tiny little bottom. That's a V. A U is when there's a longer bottom, but then it goes up again. You can picture the difference between a U and a V. There's always concerns about a W recovery, which is when you go up a little, then down, then up, then down, then up. I guess that may be a double W. But we just don't know if sports will be a V, a U, or a W. And it depends on the economy in general. It depends on whether or not the economic governmental stimulus actually works. It depends on whether there's a second wave of COVID-19. But don't despair. Keep doing what you're doing. And when everybody, when everybody is back and everybody is comfortable with what the new reality will be as it relates to masks, as it relates to sanitizing, as it relates to some sort of continued social distancing, when people are back to that, I think that's when sports will know whether they are involved in a V or a U or a W. We'll wait to see. That was a good question. Thank you so much. What advice, ooh, I like this one. What advice can you give future athletes or the average Joe who sees a bump in salary? So this is an, an interesting question because I was hesitant to answer it this month because so many people are struggling. Unemployment has a chance to reach 20% with over 30 million people filing for unemployment in the last month or two. So this question was asked, about future athletes or the average Joe who sees a bump in salary. Well, I promise you that if you work hard and if you are good at what you do, there will be a bump in salary at some point. And the question is, what advice do I give? So now you're talking about something that is beyond the purview of what a normal team president would do. And I did it all the time. I talked about money with our players all the time. Anytime payday would come, and that would be every two weeks. Anytime there was an arbitration case and a player won or lost. Anytime we negotiated contracts, whether it was a one-year contract for a zero to three player, meaning a young player where they were going to get the minimum, or whether it was a player who was making millions of dollars on a one-year deal, a rookie versus a veteran. 
I would talk to these athletes and I would talk about what to do where they are now making all this money. And then I go around and I've given speeches to high school athletes and college athletes and people who are not yet making money. Of course, there's no NIL, no name image likeness quite yet for college players. But what is it like when you are in a position where you know that you will be making money at some point? So here's the advice that I start with. There's two things in your life. There are variable costs and there are fixed costs. Variable costs are costs that you can control on a minute-by-minute basis. Fixed costs are costs that require, at minimum, a month and possibly even up to a year to control or longer. An example of a fixed cost is your mortgage. An example of a variable cost is what you just ordered on Amazon while you were listening to this bonus pod. So what you do is you have to keep track. And I'm a man of lists, I'm a man of spreadsheets, and I keep track of things because I want to have it in my head because I want to know what happens when it rains and what happens when it's sunny. So on a rainy day, you have to try to get rid of all of your variable costs and you have to try to limit your fixed costs, don't increase your fixed costs, and see if you have to get out of your fixed costs what you can do to lower them. When it becomes sunny out and all of a sudden you've got more money, you're getting paid again, maybe your furlough is over, maybe you have a new job where you're getting paid more, how quickly should you enter into new fixed costs? The biggest mistake that athletes make when they're about to make money is they get commitments that they believe they need, that in fact they don't, and the minute that their stream of income ends, They say to themselves, how do I get rid of it? A bigger house, a second house, a more expensive car, a second car, an extra piece of jewelry, a diamond earring, a chef, a different outfit for every day of the week. Personal grooming items. Plastic surgery, things to make them feel better about the way they look physically, one-time purchases, online addiction. All of these are things that people do when they feel like they have more money than they needed beforehand. It's like having money burning a hole in your pocket. Have you heard that expression? I walk up to athletes, and I've done this before with young people also, and I walk up and I open my pockets and I would take my hands in my pocket and I would plan this so I would have nothing in my pocket and I would show a pocket turned inside out the way baseball players sometimes their back pocket, which always drove me crazy. I think it looks terrible, but they put their batting gloves in their back pocket and then when they sometimes the pocket would be hanging out and I would show the empty pocket And the purpose of showing the empty pocket was a double entendre. The first point was that, look, there's no hole. There's no burning. That is a simple pocket that looks the same whether you're making X dollars or X squared dollars. Two, that pocket that's empty, I control whether that pocket gets empty and how quickly that pocket gets empty. Control is the key. I may be accused of being a control freak. I get it. But the advice I give is you must control yourself and control your own narrative. Because when you start making money, 
whether it's a bump in salary of five grand, 50 grand, or 100 grand, the reality is, or a million or 10 million or whatever the case is, whether you are making you know, $20,000 a year or 20 million a year, when you start making more money, you start having more choices. Money equals choices. And often money equals bad choices. And those who make bad choices are those who end up with pockets that don't have a hole in them, but they certainly are empty. So my advice is make a list of your fixed and variable expenses. Make sure that your fixed expenses do not increase in the same amount as your increase in, in salary. Maybe 10 to 15% of your adjusted gross income increase, meaning don't forget about taxes. When your boss gives you a $5,000 salary increase, you're not going to have $5,000 extra at the end of the year. It's minus taxes. So don't increase your fixed expenses by more than 5 to 10%. Allow yourself for an immediate variable expense, which is do something that makes you happy. Take a trip. Do something for your family. Buy something that you normally wouldn't have bought that feels good to buy. Do it. Remember it. Mark it down. And don't do it again for at least, at least 30 days. Do not change your variable expenses for 30 days after your bump in salary because you will find that 30 days will pass. You will have lived without spending the extra money and then you will be able to save it. And the last thing when you get a bump in salary is don't think that a pandemic or an asteroid or the apocalypse or zombies, or a UFO, or a hurricane, or a bus crash, or some other such hard event is going to take place because the odds are the sun's going to come up tomorrow. And you're going to want to save that money for when you're no longer able to make the salary that you're currently making. Thank you for that question. Next one's a bit... Uh, a bit, a bit of an interesting dive. And I, you know, you're listening to this. If you've never seen me, I have a beard. I'm, I'm growing a beard for the ML Beard Challenge. I grew up a, uh, um, in Milwaukee for a few years, then New York City. And uh, I am white. Yes, if you've never seen me, I am white and Jewish. But I want to answer this question because I spent so much time on this over the years in baseball. It's a question that says, thank you for honoring Jackie Robinson. If you were the commissioner, what would you do to reverse the declining numbers of blacks in baseball? Let me say that again because it's an important question. Thank you for honoring Jackie Robinson. You know, baseball honors Jackie Robinson, and I honored him on my show on April 15th on Nothing Personal. That's Jackie Robinson Day. In baseball, everyone wears number 42, Jackie's day, Jackie's number. Every team has retired number 42. There are no more 42s. I can't, I don't know if I'm positive about this. I think Mariano Rivera was the last player to wear number 42. And the commissioner has been working, as all commissioners do, on increasing, not decreasing, increasing activation in the black and African-American community. And it's worked to a small degree, but in no way has it worked in the degree that people would hope. We've talked a lot on Nothing Personal about the Rooney rules in football, the Selig rule in baseball. Those are rules under which you have to uh, interview minority candidates for top positions in the sport. But we'd all agree 
that minority representation, black representation at the upper levels in baseball is de minimis. We talk about Mike Hill, who is my president of base, my GM, my president of baseball operations, our, not my, our. We talk about uh, Kenny Williams, who is the president of baseball operations with the Chicago White Sox. And then I'm not sure who we talk about. I guess we could mention Al Avila. And now we're going to get to my point. We would spend so much time trying to figure out how to reverse the declining numbers of blacks in baseball that we were ignoring one of the big points that's happened in the sport of baseball, which is minority representation in general has increased at a very healthy rate. Minority participation, minority representation, but it's increased mostly in the Hispanic community. The number of blacks playing baseball, you've got Lewis Brinson with the Marlins, you have D. Gordon, you have Tim Anderson, a great player with the White Sox. We had Dontrell Willis. I mean, many, many African-American players. But why were there so few? And the answer always was that for whatever reason, whether it's money, desire, sex appeal, opportunity to make money faster and younger, location, whatever the factors were, young African-Americans were not choosing to play baseball in the numbers that they used to. And we used to blame it on the fact that there weren't enough major leaguers who were black for them to look up to. But I always disputed that because I grew up and my absolute sports hero was Patrick Ewing. I don't see color. I see athletic ability. I don't see color. I see someone who can help my team win. I don't see color. I see someone who I respect and I respect his ability or what he does off the court or on the court or off the field or on the field. What I didn't really understand is that when you look at role models and you look at what it's very hard and this is tough to talk about, but I, I grew up lucky, and I am lucky to this day. I'm one of the luckiest people I know in every way. It's very hard for me to tell someone who does not have the opportunities that I had. I took advantage of them, there's no doubt. There's plenty of people who have the opportunities I have who do nothing with them. But it's very hard for me to be in charge of a plan, to do something to take care of people who grew up with a completely different perspective on life than I've had. I've never walked in their shoes. So one of the problems that sports has is that they've got the wrong people trying to come up with the right solutions. You can't have a group of MLB owners coming up with a way to increase the participation numbers of blacks in baseball. So what we do is you hire and you have a reviving baseball in the inner cities and you have an African-American run that department. You make sure that you've got representation in the, in the commissioner's office and in the front office at the community level. But is that enough? Well, we say it is, and I'm sorry to say it's not. And the reason it's not is that we don't empower those people enough to make the decisions that are necessary to start the roller coaster of participation and affinity to the game at the youngest ages. To do it, it requires investment in the millions of dollars per team. From a country standpoint, it requires investment in the billions of dollars. We need to make it easy for 
the young African-American communities to play baseball. We have to support them with leagues, with clothes, with equipment. And we say we do it. We talk about RBI, and I love it. Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities is one of the great programs ever. But we know it's not enough because we know that we have not fed the supply chain in any way over the last 20, 30 years. Remember earlier in the show, I talked about the roller coaster of fan engagement and fan affinity. It's the same with reversing the decline of blacks in baseball. In order for them to play baseball, they need to be starting at a young age. Why do you think there's such a high percentage of players from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela who play baseball, who are major leaguers? Because they're in diapers holding a baseball. They're in diapers playing. They play without shoes, with shoes. They play on dirt. They play without dirt. In Cuba, they're doing it every day, all day. That is something that if they, that if we don't have kids doing that, canceling of the Little League World Series we talked about on Nothing Personal yesterday, that will have an impact if the Little League season gets canceled, if RBI gets canceled this summer. That will put a, another delay in the supply chain that will require even more work to continue it and keep it going. My biggest concern is that the reason why sports does not make the big enough investment to reverse the decline of blacks in baseball is they don't feel it's going to pay. They don't feel the ROI is enough. Because at the end of the day, the way their franchise values go up, the way they make revenue the way they get people in the stands or people giving them local TV broadcast money. It is a self-perpetuating cycle, but the way they do it, it has nothing to do with whether or not there's blacks in baseball. And I'm sorry, but this is nothing personal. And I tell you that it's business and I'm always going to tell you the truth. What I would do, I would make a large, multifaceted, 10-year investment. I would require for every owner upon a transaction, this is where my plan would be slightly different. As commissioner and as owner, and the odds of this are actually very good if we had the desire at all levels of ownership. When someone wants to buy a baseball team, did you know that they, they would agree to anything? Jim Crane with the Houston Astros agreed to move the Astros into the American League in order to become an owner of the Astros. Derek Jeter would have done backflips in the middle of Kai Ocho if he could have been the control person for the Marlins. Owners will do anything. It is my belief that there should be a VIG. We know what VIGs are for all the gamblers in case anyone forgot how to gamble. Vigorous is like juice. It's vigorous. It's what goes to the house. There needs to be $10 million from every transaction. $10 million from every transaction that goes into a fund. And that fund is for the sole purpose of feeding the supply chain for minorities and blacks to play baseball. Not to be hired into baseball, to play baseball. Then out of that fund... I want 20% of that. So 2 million of the 10, eight's going to go to get them to play. 2 million is going to go into the education and training for front office positions. Not the sort of diversity program that we have now, which by the way, wins awards and everyone gets so much credit for everything that's done in order to give people an opportunity to help with resume building, to help with interviews. But none of it matters if there's no hiring going on. 
And the way hiring goes on is education starts at levels that are younger than when you're actually applying for a job. I want millions of dollars to go into what I would call a trade school. Education is going to be so different moving forward. Learning a trade, becoming an expert at a trade is going to be so critical. And trade school used to be associated like pejorative, totally pejorative. Oh, you're in a trade school? I guess, what are you going to be, a plumber or an electrician? By the way, that's a great thing to be. You make a great living. What about a trade school to go into sports that doesn't start when you can maybe go to graduate school or doesn't start when you can maybe get a master's degree or get a formal education in college? What if we started right as part of Little League? What if Little League was 80% on the field and 20% instruction and kids would learn to love it because they wouldn't have a choice? I remind people of my ninth grade baseball I've told you about why I love grammar. We had to learn and read and understand baseball in order to play baseball. I never made it past freshman because I was so small, but that's not the point. I'll never forget Mr. Bald in freshman baseball at Horace Mann, the way he made us learn defensive positioning, the way he made us speak correctly when there was a fly ball. I have it, not I got it. All of the classroom learning we did, $10 million from every transaction. Just think about the difference that can make. When you, have a tra- when you have a team going for all that money, that's what I would do if I were a commissioner. The next one's an Astros question. If Alex Bregman were to get up opening day and give a speech apologizing, would he and the Astros be forgiven? And what could they do to be forgiven? Well, we're back to Astros, which makes me happy because people are getting excited People are getting the feeling that there is baseball coming back. The question you're asking yourself is, are you as emotional about the Astros as you were when baseball was pre-pandemic? How do you feel about the fact that the Astros were banging trash cans and stealing signs and cheating? What will you do when you go to a game or watch a game? Will you continue to be as harsh and mean as people were during spring training. And if you are going to be that way, what can the Astros do to change it? Well, it's a two-parter. The first part is, let me ask you, why are you going to be that way? I've noticed now as I am uh, going running in the streets of, of Fort Lauderdale, I've noticed two things that have happened as this pandemic has increased. One, nice people are getting nicer. Two, angry people are getting angrier. It's an interesting sort of psychological tangential result of this pandemic. People who say good morning, and I'm a good morning person when I run and I run by people. If I get eye contact, you say good morning. How are you? How are you feeling? It's just to have some sort of social interaction, social contact. Of course, there are other people who basically give you the finger, or when you're running on the street to do social distancing, they beep at you because they don't want to move their car into the outside lane, or they give you the finger. Angry, bitter people getting angrier and more bitter. Nice people getting nicer and more accommodating. So if I'm the Houston Astros, who do I appeal to? Well, it's the old story in business. If you know in baseball that you need 23 votes of the owners to accomplish something. 
and you can have seven of the owners who don't agree with you. And you speak to an owner on a subject, let's say it's the universal DH, and you know very well that there's an owner, let's say of the St. Louis Cardinals, Bill DeWitt was an owner who was always uh, very vocal about the universal DH. Let's say that it's an absolute no. I will not vote for the universal DH. Do you spend time trying to convince him to change his mind? Or do you allocate your time to find 23 other people who will vote yes to what you want? My answer has always been simple. There's a lot of people who take the time because they're afraid to not be liked. I have no problem if people don't like me. People freak out on Twitter at David P. Sampson. If, if people, if I'm not liked or if people send me a negative tweet or, or have a negative message or a reply or a negative DM, it doesn't bother me in the least at all. I've always told you I worry about apathy way more than I worry about people who are hatred, hating me. At least they have an opinion and I respect their opinion. I don't want to be liked by everyone. I don't need to be liked by everyone. I mean, there's about seven to 10 people I wouldn't mind. But other than that, if you like me or you're entertained by me or you're educated by me or whatever the reason, maybe you're bored of me. Maybe you're simply less bored of me than you are of the people you're quarantining with or during the ride to work when you start commuting, you like listening to nothing personal as a way to pass the time because you just drop F-bombs under your breath at me or the opposite. You're thankful. Either way, you're engaged and I'm appreciative. If I'm Alex Bregman, I'm not spending one minute trying to get the people who are the haters to hate me less. There is nothing I'm going to be able to do to stop the people who are coming down to the dugout banging trash cans and screaming. What I'm trying to do is talk to the people who do believe in me, who do believe that I have an opportunity to apologize and move forward, who will give me the benefit of a doubt. If I'm Alex Bregman, I do stand up, but I don't do it alone and I don't do it with Jim Crane. I do it with Jose Altuve. I do it with every single player who is on the 2017 team, no matter what team he is playing for now. We're all able to coordinate Zoom calls with 25 friends. We have meetings with 30 people on them. I am talking about a full team apology where they stand up and they acknowledge they already have immunity. They stand up and they say the following. We wanted to get in touch with you because we did this all wrong. We tried to get you to believe that what we did was right. We tried to get you to believe that it wasn't a big deal what we did, that it didn't impact series, which I believe it didn't. But you're going to have to say that it did. We tried to play you like a fool. We were disrespectful to our players, to our co-players, to every team. But most importantly, we were disrespectful to you, the fans of the Houston Astros and the fans of Major League Baseball. All I can do is change the present and the future. I cannot change the past. You will have every opportunity to never forgive me or to never understand why we chose to do what we did. And I'm not asking you to in any way change your opinion. What I am asking on behalf of me and the rest of the Houston Astros who are on that team is that you take this heartfelt, sincere apology recognize that everybody makes mistakes and this was a mistake that I will never be able to forgive myself. I will never be able to forget. 
and I don't need people coming to the dugout and banging trash cans or sending me hate mail or death threats. That doesn't remind me of what we all did. What reminds me of what we did is every time I look in the mirror, and that's something I'm never going to be able to change. I beg for your forgiveness. And then I stop. I stop. I don't talk about it again. I don't mention it again. And I move on to the business of baseball and letting people have that path to moving on, knowing that there will never be 100% acceptance of our World Series. There never will be 100% forgiveness of what we did. But I have now explained to you, apologized to you, and those who let me move on will let me move on. That's what I would do. Okay, uh, the last two. I like this one. Who is your all Samson Marlins team by position? That's a good one. So I did. This was actually harder than you think. When you're with a team for 16 years, you got a lot of players. When you're trading players left and right, fire sale this, trading that, moving players in and out, releasing, signing, cutting, winning the World Series, losing 100 games, boy, you got a lot of players. So with no apologies to any player left off the list, with no apologies to those who I am actually still friendly with, my all-time Marlins team by position, here we go. First base, starting at first base, two choices. I'm going to give you, I'm going to go, I did mostly two choices. It was between Derek Lee and Carlos Delgado. And Derek Lee, we want to ring with Derek Lee. But Carlos Delgado, when we had him in 2005, when I watched him play and thinking about his career, Carlos Delgado gets the slight edge over Derek Lee. And I love both these men. I'm so appreciative to Derek Lee as one of the greatest defenders I've ever seen at first base, clutch hitting just everything. So sorry to trade you, Derek, although you did pretty well with the Cubs. Carlos Delgado over D. Lee. Second base. I'm sorry, Uggs. Love you, man. But you got to go with Luis Castillo. Shortstop, again, watching Alex Gonzalez play short for the World Series champion was nothing short of an honor. But Hanley Ramirez is my shortstop. Third base, it's Mike Lowell, period. End of sentence. Left field, you think I'm not going to say niner? Jeff Conine is my starting left fielder. Center field, toughest one was center field putting Juan Pierre over Christian Yelich. Juan Pierre as a straight-up center fielder, top of the lineup guy. You're right, Yelich is an MVP. Phenomenal, but I have Pierre over Yelich. Right field, Giancarlo Stanton, of course. Catcher, two World Series winning catchers, Charles Johnson, Pudge Rodriguez. Pudge is a Hall of Famer. Just Pudge is Pudge. Pudge over Charles Johnson. Starting pitching is tough, and there could be a, a, a there's, it's personal a little bit here because these are both men who I enjoy. Jose Fernandez obviously is no longer with us, but to me, he was the best starting pitcher I ever saw. I have Jose Fernandez over Josh Beckett. Relief pitcher, Ugi Urbina. I'm not happy that he spent 10 years in jail for attempted murder, but as a closer, I had him in Montreal, had him in Florida. He's my favorite and the best. I have him over Armando Benitez. Don't sleep in Armando Benitez if you're a Mets fan and you're despondent. He was phenomenal for us. Bench player, you know I'm going Ichiro. Ichiro over Andy Fox. Andy Fox was a critical bench player for us in 03. Now you're saying that's my team. Delgado, Castillo, Ramirez, Lowell, Conine, Pierre Stanton, Pudge, Jose Fernandez, Ugeth Urbina, 
Ichiro. The manager is Jack McKeon. And I had a lot of managers to choose from. And the overall MVP best player, the best player of my career. And I've had Vladimir Guerrero. I've had Hall of Famers, Pudge. The best player and the MVP of the Marlins, Miguel Cabrera. Thanks. That's the all Samson Marlins team by position. All right. We're up now to the top 100 movies. This is people have asked me time and time again, can you please release your top 100 movies? And I would talk about movies. I review a movie every day on nothing personal or a TV show or something that I'm watching. I'm doing the lifetime quarantine best picture challenge or the quarantine lifetime best picture challenge. I say it both ways. I've released number 21 through 100 on previous uh, mailbag pods. Here we go. My top 20. My 20th favorite movie of all time is a movie starring Warren Beatty. It's the movie where he met Annette Benning, his now wife. And it is a movie with Ben Kingsley. It's a movie about how Vegas actually started. It's called Bugsy. Bugsy is, uh, it's a mob movie, but it is the best mob movie there is. No apologies to Goodfellas. You know it's on my list. But Bugsy is the 20th favorite movie. Remember, this list is not the 20 or not the 100 best movies ever made. This list, my favorite movies. That's it. It's my list. I'd love you to make your own list. Somehow find a way, and it takes a lot of time. Write down and go through every movie you've seen. To do it, you've got to go through every movie released of every year you've been alive practically. It takes weeks. Who doesn't got the time? Who doesn't have the time? Sorry, Mr. Balt. Who doesn't have the time? Make a list. But then your list is my list, and my list is your list. It's okay. Number 19. It's Andre the Giant. It's the gorgeous Robin Wright. It's Princess Buttercup. It's Fred Savage as a boy. It's Peter Falk. It's Billy Crystal. Are you on the Brute Squad? I am the Brute Squad. The Princess Bride. Number 18, we just had a loss. Actually, the inspector in this movie just passed away this week. My top 18 movie is Slumdog Millionaire, directed by, uh, oh, God, he's, he's uh, Danny Boyle. It is, uh, if you've never seen Slumdog Millionaire, it's about who wants to be a millionaire, and it, it's so not about that. It's so not about that. Please see it. Best picture. Shakespeare in Love, number 17. That is the most controversial movie on my list. For the love of anything, why do people not understand the brilliance of that screenplay? If you have ever read Shakespeare, if you haven't, read Shakespeare. It's worth it. Even read the Cliff Notes or the Monarch Notes. I think they're called the Monarch Notes. The Yellow Note, whatever they're called. I think the, uh, what do they call when you don't have to actually read the book? In any case, read some Shakespeare. The screenplay for Shakespeare in Love is brilliant. Gwyneth Paltrow won an Oscar. It won Best Picture. Forget Harvey Weinstein. Forget what he did to have that win. Did it deserve to win? Was it better? I think it was going, I, I think that, Mikey, was that, uh, was it, did that beat Saving Private Ryan that year? I can't remember. Whatever it did, the reality is it is a perfect movie. You're right. Ben Affleck's in it. Can Ben Affleck be in a perfect movie? Yes, he can. Jeffrey Rush. Yes, he can. Shakespeare in Love. Number 16 is L.A. Story. L.A. Story is a movie with Steve Martin and Sarah Jessica Parker. It is a movie about what it is to live in L.A. It's got a soundtrack that has Anya in it. It is the most spiritual, interesting movie. And... It, it is based upon the premise of what happens 
there is more to life in heaven and earth than what is dreamt of in your philosophy. It is about a man who somehow finds a way. It's with his then wife, Victoria Tennant. He finds a way to not just find love, but he finds love in LA, which can be a city that is loveless and full of pain. It's a brilliant movie. LA story. Please try it. Number 15 is Inception. Is it, did the the top stop or not? Did it stop or not? I've got my views. I would say not. Inception. You could watch it 10 times. It looks different 10 different ways. If you think Leonardo DiCaprio is not a brilliant actor, I just, I don't know what you're watching. I really don't. Number 14, it's Wilson. Now, how do I have Wilson? If you've watched nothing personal and you watch it on on YouTube, the CBS Sports uh, channel, uh, or anywhere under nothing personal, David Sampson, you know that I live with Wilson. And uh, I do. Castaway, number 14. It's a uh, perfect movie. Number 13 is Fletch. If you haven't seen Fletch because you're too old, watch it. If you've seen Fletch 20 times, you're going to watch it again, I guarantee it. It's probably the movie that I've seen the most. It's the movie I can quote the most. And it is the movie that uh, uh, it is slightly worse than my number 10 movie, which is Let It Ride. But Let It Ride and Fletch are my two top comedies. Number 12 is Love Actually, and I'm not embarrassed to say it. It's Love Actually. I love the music. I love the stories. I love how they're interwoven. I love everything about it. You're telling me when Kieran Knightley gets the signs, which talk about the fact that she's going to be loved to the end of time, it's perfect. Hugh Grant, yes, I love Love Actually, and I'll watch it every single time, not just on Christmas. Number 11 is American Hustle, a David O. Russell movie with uh, Amy Adams, as well as Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale. I don't know why it did not get as much love as it did. It's the 11th favorite movie I've ever seen in my life. It is great on so many levels. It has Louis C.K. before he became sort of a monster. He is an interesting guy who is Bradley Cooper's boss. But the, the, the script, the way it's shot, seeing Christian Bale with a beer belly, all of which is real, the, the music, the way it makes you feel, American Hustle. It's got a lot of layers to the story. Don't forget Jennifer Lawrence. Number 10, Let It Ride. Can't talk about it anymore. Let It Ride. Whether you like gambling or not, Richard Dreyfus. Let It Ride. Number nine, Up in the Air. Up in the Air with George Clooney and Anna Kendrick and Vera Farmiga. Uh, it is directed by Ivan Reitman's son, Jason Reitman. And it's a movie about what it is to fire people. It's a movie about what it is to want commitment or not want commitment and to understand what commitment means up in the air is number nine. Shawshank Redemption, there's nothing more to say about it. That's number eight. Most people have it even higher than that. Number seven, a musical by Baz Lerman called Moulin Rouge with Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. It is a visual stimulus with a soundtrack. It's now a Broadway musical, even though Broadway shuttered. Check out Moulin Rouge, number seven. Number six, Cameron Crowe, my favorite filmmaker, Almost Famous. It is about a band, and it's about a young boy who writes an article for a magazine about the band, travels with the band. It made Kate Hudson Kate Hudson. You've got Billy Crudup in it, and Philip Seymour Hoffman has a supporting role where his nuggets of brilliance make you miss him all the more. And then the soundtrack is the soundtrack. Top five, Lost in Translation. Number five, 
if you want to learn what it is to be in Japan, if you want to learn what it is to have a relationship with your family, with people you meet, what it is to be lonely, what it is to need an outlet, whether it's mental or physical. If you want to know what it is to watch a movie that will make you think and take stock, that is Lost in Translation, number five. Number four is The Fisher King. The Fisher King is a Terry Gilliam movie with uh, Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams and Amanda Plummer. It's hard to explain, except it's about mental illness. It is a Mercedes Rule won the Academy Award for this movie. Uh, she played Jeff Bridges' girlfriend. It's about a guy who has everything and then all of a sudden has nothing and how he comes to grips with that reality. But it's not about riches to poor, poor to rich. It's actually about how it is that by saving someone else, you can save yourself. My number three movie is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That is a movie that uh, with uh, Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt. It is a movie where one person ages forward, one person ages backwards, and they meet in the middle, and they have a relationship their entire life from start to finish, literally. It is a movie that actually uh, takes place somewhat in New Orleans, during Katrina, but more importantly, it takes place around the world and it takes place in a world that is the opposite of the Irishman where they used makeup to make Bobby De Niro look younger and Joe Pesci look younger. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button is emotional. It's spiritual. It is, it is a, a, um, an example of how people can find what it is and who it is that they are, what it is they stand for, and do it in a way where age is irrelevant. And what an interesting concept that is. You know my number two movie? You may never have heard of it. It's called Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is a movie. It's directed by Lawrence Kasdan, starring Kevin Klein, Danny Glover, Mary McDonald, and many others, Steve Martin. I don't want to say anything about Grand Canyon, but if, if you could do me one favor with this list of top 20, I'd like you to see all 20 movies. But if you're going to start with a movie during this day and age, right now during the pandemic, watch Grand Canyon. Because if you watch Grand Canyon, you will realize that tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring? Grand Canyon is a movie that will always remain my number two movie. I don't think that any movie will ever supplant it. And I don't think it will ever get to number one because you know my number one is Fearless. With Jeff Bridges again, Jeff Bridges, two of the top four. Fearless is about surviving a plane crash. It is something that is uh, emotional to me. It is something that when you watch Rosie Perez and Isabella Rossellini and John Turturro and Tom Hulse, you say to yourself, how is it a movie directed by Peter Weir could capture something that everybody fears and put it in a way that makes everybody alive? Fearless is a movie about what it is to live, what it is to take advantage of what we are given. Because in this time of pandemic, in this time of quarantine and of isolation, of loneliness, of despair, of economic despair, of social despair, of mental and physical atrophy, knowing, knowing that if you wake up tomorrow, you have the chance, you yourself have the chance to make tomorrow different than today. And that's what Fearless is about. Thank you very much. That is the April edition of the Mailbag Bonus Pod. Look forward to nothing personal coming back to you at the end of the weekend. And by the way, when it comes to all of these questions, keep them coming because it's personal and it's business. 